Hi, I'm Kay Stout. I'm the Executive Director at Paws Vanita in Vanita, Oklahoma, and you're listening to Common Bonds Radio. It's episode one of our podcast. Hi, I'm Kelly Burley. Just ahead, a conversation with Executive Director of the Kirkpatrick Foundation, Louisa McCune, about the Common Bonds collaboration to end the needless euthanasia of cats and dogs in Oklahoma. And author Teresa Miller shares her short story from Love Can Be, a literary collection about our animals. That's all just ahead after this roundup of news from the world of cats and dogs. We begin in Arizona, where the Pima Animal Care Center has launched a new kind of life-saving animal shelter to win the battle against the behavioral and health decline of pets due to stress and prolonged confinement. PACS Director Kristen Hassan-Auerbach came up with the idea to develop a foster program throughout Pima County to transform the shelter's old model through a new foster initiative built on massive public participation. In a single year, PAC put more than 5,000 pets in foster homes, engaged 2,000 foster volunteers, and drove up their save rate to 91%. Kristen says the results prove that making a shift to become foster-centric can dramatically improve live outcomes and turn things around quickly. The story by Semarin Morrissey for Best Friends Animal Society is available in the story section at bestfriends.org. Close at home, if you own a dog or cat in Norman and you leave them unattended and tethered, you could be in for a fine. An ordinance passed by the City Council in May and effective September 1st includes restrictions on owners leaving their dogs and cats unsupervised while tied up. The City Police Department says the goal of the new ordinance is to raise awareness about the issue and to ensure safety for both people and animals. And finally, from England, a dog trainer and bicyclist recently pedaled his way across a 300-mile stretch of the country on a tour of animal shelters. Dominic Hodson's Tour to Rescue highlighted the work of shelter staff and volunteers while promoting pet adoption. Hodson, who gave up a sales career eight years ago to work with animals, tells the UK publication The Mirror that many shelters are one- or two-person operations with few resources and that the people who work in these small facilities are unsung heroes who give so much of their lives to pick up the pieces when dogs are abandoned or mistreated. Hodson, who has three rescues of his own, says he wants to shatter the myths about rescue dogs to show they aren't unhealthy, damaged, or have behavioral problems. To learn more about Hodson's work, visit facebook.com slash tour the rescue. Thousands of Oklahomans share the common bond of pet ownership. Humane outcomes for all dogs and cats are also ties that bind many of us together. In Oklahoma, animal advocates, caregivers, protectors, and educators have come together as part of the Common Bonds Collective Impact Initiative in support of a shared goal to end the needless euthanasia of cats and dogs in our state. And while there has been a lot of progress on that front, there is still much work to do. I recently visited with the executive director of the Kirkpatrick Foundation, Louisa McCune, about Common Bonds and her foundation's role in bringing the initiative to life. I couldn't, you know, not can't take credit for this particular initiative, which we would kind of consider a sub-initiative to our overall goal of making Oklahoma the safest and most humane place to be an animal by the year 2032. 
But I had been invited to a meeting in Los Angeles that took place in February of 2018, and it was hosted by a national animal welfare group. And, you know, we work in myriad ways with farm animal protection and wildlife and exotics and, you know, uh, the whole bandwidth of, of if it's got four legs or wings, we're interested. But this group, Best Friends Animal Society, is very focused on cats and dogs and ending needless euthanasia. And so... Um, I accepted the invitation and joined a group of, I don't know, maybe 80 or 100 philanthropy executives, both in the corporate sector and in the private foundation sector. And they presented over the course of a day their, vin their vision to, quote unquote, finish the job of ending euthanasia. And I mean, I was immediately like, raised my hand and said, I've got Oklahoma. I will work on my piece, which is the state of Oklahoma. And, and so immediately I was from the back of the room texting back to Amanda here in our office and um, saying, you know, I think we need to convene a group of stakeholders and let's see if we can get some buy-in here for this. So we did that. So we got that underway. And meanwhile, we went to uh, Amanda and I and Paulette Black and Matt Goodwin, at the time, he was with Bella SPCA, now with Oklahoma Humane Society, and Kay Stout, who's with Paws up in Vanita, and Kim Schlittler, the founder of Best Friends of Pets. The six of us went down to Austin, Texas, where they were host, uh, which was hosting the annual Collective Impact Forum. And and I put together a dinner that night, just at I think at a local Mexican restaurant. Um, I was like, hey, get that person. Let's get that person. And does this person, you know, we had took some like stragglers, people who didn't look like they were with a group. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea how I met Matt Bigger. But the fact is, is that we met Dr. Matt Bigger from San Francisco and another consultant um, from Cincinnati. And uh, so these two consultants came to dinner with us. I had no designs to hire either of them. But one thing led to another, and we were really impressed, and they articulated what they do as consultants individually. They didn't know each other at all either. And I was just like, well, can you come to Oklahoma City and, like, speak to this event we're having on April 30th of 2018? And, and uh, basically they were like, well, yeah, we could. So that's how Matt Bigger became really our chief consultant. And we just started getting in action. So then, I mean, I'm going to miss a bunch of stuff here. But then we had the meeting, the two-day meeting right after Thanksgiving. That was held at the Oklahoma Heritage Association building in Midtown, where they have the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. And we had a two-day uh, strategic planning session that was led by Matt Bigger. And at that point, we had, boy, I, I, would, I used to know the number, but may, let's say 18 to 20 organizations at the table from Tulsa, from Oklahoma City, from Enid. I mean, they were, they were not, you know, just here in Oklahoma City because we really wanted this to be statewide. And, and Matt led us through these exercises that built a fully realized strategic plan. And then he went back to San Francisco and put that whole thing together between uh, in the month of December. And then I think it was probably in January that we everyone signed off on it, and so now we're now we're f official, you know. And we were work, working under the uh, working title of Save Lives United Oklahoma, and um, a lot of momentum. I mean, it was just like, and not a lot of not a lot of obstacles along the way. Everyone was really working really really well together. So um, 
So then I had lunch with one of my great friends, uh, one of my most favorite people, Kelly Burley, who's <laughs> <laughs> sitting right across from me right now. When did, what, do you remember when uh, you did that? I, was it January? I had January of 2019, and I was um, in Oklahoma City uh, to visit with you about the possibility of putting a bow on a 26-year career in public radio and looking at, you know, what might be what might be the next step for me. And you said, well, it's funny you should bring that up because I just happen to have an opportunity. And, uh, and as you explained this project to me, it was something that I wanted to be part of. And it's thrilling to get the opportunity to work with you. And it's thrilling to see all of these players at the table who bring expertise in caregiving, in rescue, in education. Yeah, communications, design, placemaking, um, strategic planning, funding. Um, you, you know, it, it, we've got this cadre of talent that is remarkable and really exciting. It's, it's you know, thrilling. You know, because this is a collective impact model and Kirkpatrick Foundation functions as the backbone you know, but but this is very important to have a low institutional ego at this in this endeavor. There are times when I want to slap the Kirkpatrick Foundation logo on everything, and then there's a time for the Kirkpatrick Foundation institutionally to take a back seat. And this this kind of endeavor is absolutely one of them. We are a player. We are not the only player. And and so hiring you was required some real finesse um, from me to say this isn't just me hiring my guy you know who's going to who's going to lead this like he's got to be hired by a um hiring committee right i mean the hi- there needs to be a hiring committee and a hiring process that really you know just talks to him and and so that's what happened i mean as i recall you went and you met with um the hiring committee, and they were all just universally like, "Oh my God, he's going to be perfect." And not not only do you have experience leading um, diverse groups of people, but you also have this um, communications specialty act, and this is a huge part of communicating both internally with our working groups and the steering committee and the internal you know leadership components of all these different groups, but also the um, public at large, because it, it's not, you know, it's going to take um, the communities, the, the town councils, the mayor, the, the local business owners, the student groups, the, you know, to kind of wake up to this idea and, and support their local animal rescues and SPCAs. It's, in, it's amazing just in the early stages as I, I was having the early conversations and just I, I kind of had the deer in the headlights look because there were a lot of dots to connect and so many different aspects of this initiative that um, that I needed to become familiar with. And, and you all have been very patient with me and I'm very grateful for that. But just for me, just seeing the passion of the players who are involved in this endeavor has been so inspiring. Um, these people that, and I've had the opportunity just in the first month to get out and, and visit some facilities and, and meet people such as Vicki Granz over at Enid SPCA, who does a wonderful job and is so passionate about what she does. And, and, um, and, and that passion is just, it's to a, to 
a team member as part of this coalition is just something that is just, it's breathtaking, it's awe-inspiring, and it's something that um, that we really have an opportunity to build from. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, she's been in this game almost longer than anyone that I've had any sort of interaction with. I mean, I think she's been doing this for 30 years, and um, so she's seen it all. And, you know, there's room in this collaboration, this formal collaboration, you know, to for everyone, for every organization, whether it's local prisons. I mean, you know, there are some incredible programs like down at Lexington Prison and, you know, a couple of private prisons. I mean, to to the Rotary Club, uh, you know, of town, you know, town of the day. I mean, there's a, there's a lane here for everyone, and we, we want to connect those dots, yes, on cats and dogs, but also on the human-animal bond. And, you know, we're animal. my mantra, I say it over, I say it at least once a week, um, where animals fare well, people fare well, and where the animals are not doing well, neither are the people. So as we are recording this, uh, we're in the throes of developing a, a comprehensive marketing plan to really uh, raise awareness of this initiative, the, the shared goal that we have of getting to that 90% live release rate by 2025 and getting more communities engaged. Right. And, and so there's no silver bullet, right? And what, and the solution involves, of course, bay neuter. The solution involves transportation out of state. Um, the solution involves leader community leadership um, and responsible pet ownership. So, you know, there's a matrix, a matrix of solutions that are our, steering committee and our working groups are working hard on coming up with these strategies and implementing them. And, you know, the newspapers are going to be important. The op-ed boards are going to be important. The, um, the citizens advocates are going to be important. For me, it's going to be about serving as, as a champion of the individual efforts that are going on among all the partners and in those communities with organizations and individuals who aren't currently partners with us that we hope to bring in to this uh, uh, initiative. And it's, it's very exciting. Um, so as you think through the process that you've taken us through about how we got to this point, and obviously we still have a long way to go to get to 2025 and the ultimate goal of this uh, collaboration, what, uh, from a personal standpoint, how does it feel to be part of something, of, of bringing something to life and seeing it really start breathing on its own? Well, uh, obviously, it's uh, enormously gratifying and emotionally and spiritually, you know, significant. Um, but it's also very entrepreneurial, right? So that's creating this thing where this where nothing existed before. So. Um, and we do that, you know, we publish a magazine also at the foundation. And, and so every, every quarter we're creating something that never existed before. So I'm, I'm comfortable in that realm, but we're going to have some foul balls and we're going to hit the singles and doubles and have a couple home runs here and there, but we're, we're on the right path towards something that's extremely visionary, extremely, um, we're on the right side of humanity here, <laughs> you know, and um, that's enormously gratifying work. And uh, I recommend it for everybody, <laughs> you know, that, that you find something that you're passionate about and that um, makes, makes a positive difference in your community.
you know, we are, our state is 15th, I think we're number 15 of of the states that euthanize the most in the United States. So we're not the worst, uh, we're not the best, by a long shot. Uh, the worst states, I think, are California, Tech. I think Texas is the worst, I think it's Florida, Texas, California, I think most of the other ones are the southern states, Georgia, Alabama. Um, you know, why are the southern states more prone to overpopulation than the northern states? Is, is it a weather thing? Is it a household income thing? Um, is it a cultural thing? I don't know. So, you know, there, there are lots of answers to that question, and the social scientists could figure that out if they haven't already. Maybe they have. But um, we can do this work and maybe be among the first. Delaware was just announced as the first state that had gone truly no kill. Um, and, and there's some great data that I, I can't articulate right now because I don't have it in front of me, but there were 100, the last data I had, not, up, not the recent, but the prior to the recent, was that we were taking in 100,000 cats and dogs in Oklahoma annually, and 70,000 were going home. And that meant that we were euthanizing 30,000 in Oklahoma annually, and that our gap, we, our attempt to get at 90% would be 20,000 fewer cats and dogs annually in Oklahoma being euthanized in shelters. So I think that number is far fewer now. Uh, just over the last year, just the gains that have been made, and also in the data, you know, better data collection. So data, data this is one of the, uh, this is a very, you know, some things are hard to collect data on, and and some things don't really have or have very intangible data measurements, but this is very tangible. We just have to get the data. How many did? How many cats and dogs came in? How many were euthanized? How many went home, wherever home is? And you know, one of the things I think is going to be real important once we get really up and running is um, identifying the communities that are doing the worst and embracing them, and just throwing all kinds of resources and help and encouragement and attention on those communities. So at the end of the day, through this initiative and all the other uh, work that the Kirkpatrick Foundation is doing to raise the bar for animal well-being in Oklahoma, um, what do you see for this state in 10, 15 years? Well, I'll tell you, I see um, I see Oklahoma if it all comes to pass, being one of those unlikely beacons. I think it's already happening, Kelly. And I, you know, we've been doing this work for seven years. So in July of 2012, we launched our Safe and Humane initiative. So we're now just had our seventh anniversary. And I have to tell you, I feel like in the last, I don't know, six months, I mean, I feel like in the last six months, we've we're, I'm seeing this momentum. Like I just got a call yesterday from... Um, someone I'm very fond of, have worked with before, very impressive animal lawyer in California. And, you know, he is sort of putting us in this pantheon in terms of animal law with uh, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and then Oklahoma as its next sort of, as the next foothold based on the work that we've been doing here. So I feel like we, Oklahoma is becoming this recognized nationally for this groundbreaking work. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the Flaming Lips. You know, we had we had the Flaming Lips. We had Michael Hedges, who was from Enid. We had, uh, uh, you know, Garth Brooks and this and Woody Guthrie. And it was like we had this incredible talent that was that was landlocked in in the nation. We and and therefore so it didn't have those obvious influences from the West Coast and the East Coast. And so we just 
in that pioneering spirit, we're like, well, what the hell? Let's do this. Like, just naive enough to, like, become one of the world's most amazing rock bands, the Flaming Lips. Just naive enough to become the great troubadour of American history, Woody Guthrie. Just amazing enough to become the most incredible guitarist on the face of the planet, Michael Hedges. Just naive enough to, you know, become Garth Brooks playing Central Park, right? It's, I, I think it's, we're, we're just, in a beautiful way, naive enough to think, well, why the hell not? To learn more about Common Bonds or to find out how you can become involved in this initiative, email me, kelly.commonbonds at gmail.com. For many of us, there is nothing more powerful than the human-animal connection and the stories about this special bond. During each episode of our podcast, we'll explore some of these wonderful stories, and we begin today with a short story from a literary collection about our animals called Love Can Be. Here's Teresa Miller with The One-Eyed Dog. A friend of mine asked me, why write about Tuffy? It's not as if he pulled a fake lassie and saved you from an abandoned well, an old mine shaft, or some other dark hole except he did. In spite of our loss, I was normal enough to have wanted a doll or even a cowgirl hat, but my grandmother had bought me a cedar trunk so we could keep my mother's memory alive, sort of. For just to be clear, this was no ordinary hope chest filled with delicate linens set aside for happier days. Instead, it was overflowing with old report cards, diplomas, and autograph books, some with giddy inscriptions about how bright the future would be. There was also the rusty harmonica and Grandma's attached note. Your mother worked after school to buy what she called a French harp. But she'd never gotten around to actually playing it before she smelled of cedar, and then we were rummaging through what might have been. My mother had died after giving birth to my brother, and Grandma had kept her bright red maternity jacket, too. I still have it, along with Grandma's full-out missive trying to make sense of all of it before settling on this. God loved her so much, he called her home. Not that it matters, but maybe it does. She'd written it on letterhead for my grandfather's furniture store and folded it into a Bible. Did I mention I was only two when Mother died? That this trunk didn't come along until later, after I was able to kneel beside it all on my own? Still, it's where my memories begin, with those secret drawers at Grandma's house. And oh yes, some dime store jewelry, already starting to fade. Think plastic turquoise priceless, Grandma said. I understand better now. The trunk became her strong box of grief. It was just different for me, especially after I found a baby book alongside the funeral roster. For Mother had overcome her own frailties to record my first words, a mantra really for living without her. Our family names, Moon, Splash, and Tuffy. Tuffy was my mother's dog, her legacy to me, and though there were still everyday reminders of what we'd lost, mother's kitchen clock had started to buzz, Tuffy was clearly of this world, shaped in part by the gentleness that had left it. If he raised his paw when you extended a hand, it was because my mother had taught him to do so. If he sat when you asked him to roll over, well, she'd taught him the difference, only to indulge him if he'd had other ideas. As for the rest of his backstory, it was sketchy and mainly came from Grandma, who claimed she didn't like dogs and stuck to the basics. Apparently, Mother had found a litter of part terrier, all mongrel pups on the college campus where she worked in the business office. 
Her fear was that they'd wind up in the science lab, so she'd secured homes for all of them but Tuffy, reportedly saying, he's so ugly he's cute. This was the closest we ever came to laughing about Mother, or even Tuffy, whose name had clearly set him up for some serious karma. Mother herself had nursed him through a severe case of mange, and then shortly after her death, he'd gotten hit by a car and lost an eye. The vet had recommended mercy, but my father wouldn't have it, he said, not after everything. So Tuffy had earned his pedigree by becoming the only one-eyed dog in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, circa 1956. I had before and after pictures. The first is from my christening day. Mother and I are all dressed up on the front porch, where I appear comfortable in her arms, but I'm reaching out to Tuffy, who has both eyes trained on someone beyond us, a finger shadow, my grandmother, my dad. The other photo's more of a blur. My brother Mark, bundled against the cold to stand with Tuffy. His hand's gotten big enough to hide Tuffy's scar. No captions necessary. We all knew what was missing. The trick was to salvage what we could, and that's where Tuffy came in. He smelled of sunshine, fresh air, and children. So in the beginning, Mark and I followed him, just never outside the neighborhood, for he seemed to understand boundaries, even as he taught us to dig up the roses, Grandpa's gift roped off in the backyard. We were good at it, the digging, that is, molding ourselves to the earth, sniffling the world around us, and letting the days collect beneath our fingernails. We also learned to hunt for a different kind of quarry, treeing squirrels or chasing rabbits just to capture a moment. No need for Dr. Phil here. We wanted to feel spared, too. One squirrel even took to chasing us, bringing us closer to that instant when we'd collapse with laughter. Tuffy right beside us, his non-eye twitching with all he couldn't see. Roll over, we'd say, and he'd nudge us with his nose. And the best? Sometimes we'd catch a glimpse of the moon in broad daylight and dust ourselves off to greet it. The science isn't there yet, but somehow this was Tuffy's doing. It's worth noting we were largely unsupervised, partly due to the false security that comes from thinking the worst has already happened. Also, we knew virtually everyone, so to play off a more familiar theory, it took a village, a distracted housekeeper, and a dog to raise us. But then one morning, a man we didn't recognize pulled his black sedan onto the fringes of the yard, propping open the door and calling out that our father had sent him. He needed us down at the law office. Insert naivete. We'd never actually been told not to get into a car with strangers since we'd never really met any. So we were all set to go until Tuffy bounded forward, his white fur bristling as he stationed himself between the car and us. There was only a brief standoff before the man screeched into the distance, and word spread once we ran inside, terrified after the fact. The one-eyed dog had stared him down. Of course, this led to all sorts of speculation about the man's motives, but he disappeared, leaving Grandma to join others in saying, we'll never know. But she wasn't just talking about him. She brought me over a telescope for my ninth birthday, and we set it up in the backyard one night. Tuffy himself pressed against me as I tilted it toward the sky. You don't really need a telescope to see the moon, my father said, staring up at it on his own. Except sometimes you did. My father had married, divorced, and married again. Grandma had taken up cryptograms, reminding everyone that Y could sometimes be R. And Grandpa, usually on the down low, had begun planting and replanting roses all over town. Somehow the changes became more real after friends gave us another dog and Tuffy started following us. 
not that he seemed to feel slighted at all, for even with Tippy in tow, he enjoyed our outings as much as we did, joining in as we staked out the park across the street and built rock bridges through the creek. Occasionally, we'd lose our footing, splashing him as we slipped into the shallow water, but he'd just shake off the deluge, splashing us back. Then a little later, as my stepmother settled in, he began coming to school. I first spotted him looking in the window of our fifth grade classroom. We'd been studying our weekly readers, casting our minds across the waters to ask if kids in Russia ate TV dinners. And there he was, his paw raised as to shake hands with the entire class. That's Tuffy, I shouted, coming into my own, for I'd heard all the whispered speculation about our family, mundane things about who packed our lunches and got the holiday cards we crafted in class. But nothing in their imagination or the reader itself can compete with the wonder of a one-eyed dog. He visited routinely after that, once even slipping into the hallway before the principal shooed him outside. His defining journey, though, didn't come until after we'd left on a trip to meet my stepmother's family in Chicago. We'd hired someone to watch over the dogs, as if there were some sort of transaction for leaving love behind. It didn't work, not for the dogs anyway. They turned up at Grandpa's store for the first time ever, crossing a busy highway, toughing in the lead as they searched for us. My grandmother, the one who didn't like dogs, found peculiar validation in this. Tuffy knew. In fact, he almost knew too much and became restless over the next few years as we grew beyond him. He didn't get my new transistor radio. He didn't get the Beatles. He didn't get a 12-year-old girl who could bypass a baby possum to jump in with a carload of friends. One spring morning, he even tugged at me, more demanding than usual as I rushed off to school. So I paused just long enough to brush my hand across his scar, and then he let me go. It was that night he went missing in a way that immediately frightened us. He'd always been a free-range dog, pretty much the custom in those days, especially in small towns. Still, he never ventured far from us, and so we tracked him by tracking ourselves. We checked the park, the school, the furniture store, and with increasing dread, all the busy intersections. But a neighbor tipped us off. She'd seen him earlier with a pack of dogs, and we knew then how need had led us all astray. Tuffy was gone, even before he returned to us, mortally wounded by a wildness that was alien to him. I couldn't bear to look at him, but I did, over and over, because the images stayed with me. They woke me in the middle of the night. They ambushed me on the playground. They followed me to Grandma's house. This was the bond I shared with Mark. We both longed for a gentler scenario and built a fountain in Tuffy's memory, beneath the shade of a sugar maple, one of his favorite spots on summer days. We vowed to preserve it, but after a while it became a haven for squirrels, rabbits, birds, new life. All of which is to say that grief, love, and joy can be free-range too, and I've wandered through the years. I gave Mother's harmonica to a man I loved, and two decades later asked for it back. I added Grandma's blue beads to the cedar chest. They matched the old turquoise better than you'd think. And I've even hunted down some final words for Tuffy, not to put him to rest, but to set him free. He's survived by the moon, acres of wild roses, and his children. The One-Eyed Dog by Teresa Miller from Love Can Be, a literary collection about our animals edited by Teresa Miller and Louisa McCune and available at Amazon.com. Do you have a story about a favorite dog or cat you'd like to share? 
If so, we'd love to hear about it and possibly include it in our podcast as we celebrate the common bond of love for dogs and cats everywhere. Just email me kelly.commonbonds at gmail.com. That's all for episode one of Common Bonds Radio. I'm Kelly Burley. And remember, if you're in the market for a cat or dog, visit your local animal shelter or rescue first. Give the gift of love to an animal while making a positive difference for your local community. And if you're already a cat or dog owner, remember to spay or neuter your pet. So long, everybody. Common Bonds Radio is made possible by the Kirkpatrick Foundation, committed to making Oklahoma the safest and most humane place to be an animal by 2032. Information at kirkpatrickfoundation.com. And by the organizations of Common Bonds, working collectively on behalf of Oklahoma pets, people, and places in support of humane outcomes for dogs and cats, including Best Friends of Pets, protecting people and pets in central Oklahoma for 25 years. Information at bestfriendsofpets.org. The Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University, pursuing innovation in animal and human health through healthcare, research, and professional education. More at cvhs.okstate.edu. And Lab Rescue Oklahoma, providing foster homes for the homeless, abandoned, injured, and unwanted dogs of Oklahoma. Info at labrescue.net.